Now, we are in the middle of a series uh, that we're doing, studying the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And what we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to remove some of the mysteries and, and the mystiques surrounding Revelation and get to the main themes. As you saw on the video that played right before we started the sermon, there's a lot of just interesting pictures there's interesting pictures that you see in that video. There's interesting pictures you see in the book. Revelation is almost like a picture book, and, and it can be confusing at times for some. It can be um, angst-producing for some others. And honestly, what we shared at the beginning of this series was that there's different ways that different people in the church approach the book of Revelation. There's different ways that they read the book of Revelation. But what we want to do in this series is strip back that mystery, strip back that mystique, and get to the main themes, and not just point to the main themes so that we understand them, but get to the point where we can live out those main themes. You see, the point of Revelation is Jesus. And what happens oftentimes is I see at times, not everyone, but some people, they look at Revelation and they're afraid to read it. Or, or they're afraid to discuss it. Or when they read it, it brings them a little bit of anxiety because they're, the, the pictures and the symbols, they're all kind of uh, strange and, and they're trying to figure it out. So somehow maybe they can, can uh, just avoid all of the, the bad things that are in the book. And, and they're trying to kind of find an escape when they approach Revelation. But the problem with that is this, is that Revelation was not meant for escaping. It was meant for engaging. Revelation was never meant for escaping. It was meant for engaging because at its core, Revelation is about discipleship. Revelation is actually about how to live out a faithful life as a disciple. How do we know that? In Revelation 1, verses 4 and 5, it says this, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the rulers, ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Who is the book targeting? Who is it written to? It's written to the church. It's written to the churches. The target audience is the churches. And what it's calling the churches to do is to remain faithful. It is a call to live out this faithful discipleship. Last week, Charles was talking about these letters, these seven letters to seven churches. And what he did is he showed us a map. He showed us a map to just show us that these were real churches. These were real churches at the time in the Roman Empire, and they were in the, the Asian province of Rome. They were in the Asian province of Rome, which is today basically modern-day Turkey. And so these were real churches that were written to. And what we're going to do is Charles started this last week. He started this last week. I'm going to continue looking at the letters to the churches, and then Charles is going to also look at it next week. That's three weeks. We're going to cover two chapters. Of Revelation. We're going to spend three weeks on two chapters for seven letters. And you might be sitting there and be like, that's a lot of time. I'm not even sure I wanted half a week. That's a lot of time when we look at that. And the reason we're spending a lot of time is because we believe that if you don't understand the letters, you're not going to understand the rest of the book. You see, the focus of the letters is one of this faithful discipleship again. 
which in turn is one of the main focuses of the book of Revelation. How do you be, how do you remain faithful in the midst of hardship? How do you remain faithful in the good times and the bad times and the in-between? We just learned a new song today. Uh, God is still in control. This it is well. This singing about when, when things are, are, are not um, going well, we sing about how God is still in control. We sing that with faithful hearts because we know the truth of who Jesus is. We know that he is in control. And so while these letters are only seven of them, they have important lessons for us to learn. They have important lessons for us to learn. But before we look into those led, uh, lessons, we're going to look at three churches today, and we're going to look at three lessons today. Before we look at those lessons, I think it's important to kind of outline a little bit of the different approaches to these letters by the different views and different ways that people look at Revelation. And we're going to do that from time to time in this series. We're going to take a look at just the different ways that people approach the book. Now, Charles mentioned this in his first sermon. If you didn't uh, hear that one, you really should go back. It's a really good foundation for this whole series. But what he talked about is these four kind of views, this historist, this preterist, and futurist and idealist view. And so when it comes to the letters, a historist would look at this. It would approach the letters and think this way, that these letters encompass the entire age of church history. The historist would say that the seven letters to the different churches represent the seven periods of church history. That's how they would approach this. A preterist will look at the letters as letters to real churches that would present things that would happen very soon after Revelation was written. A preterist, everything that was written in these letters happened soon after Revelation was written and would find ultimate fulfillment in the fall of Jerusalem. Okay? Two different approaches. You catch that? Here's a third one. The futurist would say this, while a prisoner in the Isle of Patmos, John sees a vision of Christ and commanding him to write of the events that would be fulfilled at the end of the present age, just prior to the second coming, looking towards the future. And then the idealist would say, all of these letters are symbolic of Jesus's character and his sovereignty, and that Jesus is intimately involved in the affairs of the world and the church and the number seven is symbolic, suggesting application to the whole Christian church of all ages. Got it? Because I'm going to quiz you later. Four different views. Four different views. And, and I, if you want to study them more, or you want to find out more, you can look them up or you can reach out to Charles or myself and we can talk about that or uh, email back and forth throughout the week. But the point is that there are four different ways that these are approached. So my question is, which one is right? That was a trick question. Because we're not going to focus on that. That's not what we're trying to focus on. We're not trying to focus on which approach is right. We are going to keep Jesus as our focus. And here's what we know. So while all four of these have a different approach, all four of them understand that there were seven real churches that existed, that these letters were written to. And what we also know is that each one has a lesson that we can learn from. Each of these letters has a lesson that we can learn from. How do we know that? Well, throughout the letters, there's a phrase that is repeated over and over and over again. It's whoever has ears, let them hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The lessons were not just for who these letters were written to, but the lessons were for all of us to learn as well. So let's jump into these lessons. Lesson one, we're going to jump to the letter to Smyrna. Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And I'm just going to just preface something real quick. Just apologize to all of you. I told you that we were going to do three weeks on these seven letters. The reality is, is that many churches actually spend at least seven weeks studying this. There's a lot of information in these letters. There's a lot of content, and we're not going to get to all of it. It's going to be like you ask me for a drink of water, and I just open up a fire hose and said, now go, at, go, go ahead, go drink from there. It's a lot. So I apologize in advance. We're not going to cover everything. It's going to feel rushed at times, but bear with me because you're stuck with me. So verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Before we jump into the lesson from Smyrna, I just want to remind you a little bit of what Charles said about these letters last week. Okay, Each of them has a certain format. They begin with a focus on Jesus. Each letter begins with a focus that points to a description found in chapter one of Jesus. So each one is focused on Jesus. And then what happens is, is there's an accommodation. Jesus says something good about the church. He then gives a critique. He gives a critique about something that they need to uh, correct. And then there's a challenge. This happens in each of the letters. Kind of. Kind of. Where's the correction in the letter I just read? There's no correction. There's no critique. In fact, there are two letters that don't have a correction, Smyrna and also Philadelphia. Now, if we were writing a letter to today's Philadelphia church, it would be a correction about your football team, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, there's no correction there. Now, Smyrna was a city about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was a beautiful city. It was a prosperous city. It was a very wealthy city. But did you notice what Jesus said about the church? He says, I know of your poverty. I know of your poverty. They're located in a city that is prosperous. They're located in a beautiful city. They're located in a wealthy city. And what does Jesus say? He says, I know of your poverty. What we need to also understand is that this city was filled um, in this province with many Jewish people, many Jews. 
And the Jewish people were against the Christian church at that time. And, and there's persecution that happens because of it. There's trials that come with it. And what we see in this is that those trials, those persecutions must have led to a financial poverty. But what does Jesus say? He says, you are rich. You are spiritually rich. <coughs> Again, there's no critique in the letter to Smyrna. There's only encouragement. And in that encouragement, we find lesson number one. Lesson number one is this. Jesus sees our hardships even when it feels like he doesn't. Jesus sees our hardships even when it feels like he doesn't. What does he say? I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know about the slander. I know about the, the things that people are saying about you. Jesus sees our hardships even when it feels like he doesn't. Now, if you're going through a difficult time, that might bring you comfort or it might actually bring you the opposite. Actually, when you see that, when you see that lesson, you can be like, okay. You see that I'm going through something here. You see that something difficult is going on here. What's the deal? If you know it's going on, what's the deal? Not only does Jesus know what we're going through, he knows what it feels like to go through what we're going through. Not only does Jesus know what we're going through, he knows what it feels like to go through what we're going through. And there's this really interesting identification marker that happens in this letter that points to something powerful in regards to that statement. I told you at the beginning of each letter, there's a description, okay? There's a description that points back to a description of Jesus in chapter 1. And what's the description here? These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Now, as, as uh, Christians, as people who have uh, either grown up in a church or been exposed to the Bible, that description may not be something that you kind of know. It's like, yes, he died and he came to life again. But you need to know something about Smyrna. Many years before this letter was written, Smyrna was completely destroyed. And for 300 years, it was in ruins. Until it was resurrected, if you will. Until it was brought back into this vibrant city and they held as a foundation of their identity of being a city that was dead and has now come to life. And what happens in this description is that their identity is actually flipped and actually now placed in a foundation of Jesus. You see, Jesus creates this new foundation for their identity. And the point isn't for Jesus to identify with our hardships. The point is that he invites us to find our identity in his hardships. And here's how that looks. Because it's very, it's very important that we understand that when we find our identity in Christ, our hardships are now found in that identity in Christ. And it changes everything of how we look at them. And here's what I mean by that. You ever go to the beach? Yeah, none of you want to raise your hand because you're very engaging today. <laughs> uh, you ever go to the beach? You ever go as a kid? You ever go as a little kid? Maybe you went with your your dad or, or, or uh, a grandfather or an uncle or, or someone. 
And when that kid goes to the beach and they're following this dad, they're smaller, maybe a five-year-old, maybe a six-year-old. They're smaller, right? Their hands are smaller. Their head is smaller. Their feet are smaller. In fact, those feet of that dad walking ahead is like a size 12 or a size 13. And so every time that dad walks, they make big footprints in the stand. And what if this little kid is watching those big footprints and for fun, he starts to hop and skip. And what he's doing is he's stepping into the big footprints. Every step that he takes is into that big footprint. Well, what he does is he walks the walk of the one he's following. We're just little kids stepping into the footprints of Jesus in front of us. And when we step into those footprints, and that's the walk that we're walking, let's just understand this. We follow where Jesus went. And where Jesus walked, there was hardship. Where Jesus walked, there was persecution. Where Jesus walked, there was slander. Where Jesus walked, there was pain. Where Jesus walked, there was death. We should not be shocked if we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus when they, these things enter into our lives. But when we enter into them, what we understand is they, we enter into them as followers of the one who walked before us and who doesn't just know about the hardships that we're facing. He understands and has experienced the pain and hardship that we're facing. And that changes everything. So lesson number one, again, is that Jesus sees our hardships even when it feels like he doesn't. And not only does he understand our hardships, he understands how they feel. All right, let's jump to the next church, Pergamum. Revelation 2, starting at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the church says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So Pergamum wasn't really known for its wealth. It wasn't really known for its wealth like, like Smyrna was. It was actually more known for, uh, for its, its knowledge and, and its politics. And uh, it had the second largest library in the world at the time. It was the oldest city in that Asian province. Had several temples for the worship of false gods. And it also is the only church that in its letter mentions by name a martyr, someone who gave their life for their faith in Jesus, Antipas. This is the only place we hear of him in the Bible. So what does Jesus say to this church? Well, again, he commends them for their faithfulness. They have been faithful. They are in a dark place. There's a lot of stuff happening around them, and they remain faithful. Faithful even unto death as he looks at Antipas. 
some of them are following the teaching of Balaam. What's going on there? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament. The Bible is uh, divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So let's go to the Old Testament, uh, early on to a book of Numbers. In there, we find a story about Balaam. It's a crazy story. If you've never read it, it's awesome. It even has a uh, talking donkey. It's, It's great. Go read the story. It's wonderful. Balaam is a prophet. And the leader of, and so what happens is, is that God takes, sets apart a people, sets apart a nation, Israel. They are his. And he takes them into a land that he has promised for them. But surrounding them are a bunch of enemy nations who, who want to destroy Israel. One of these nations is Moab. And the leader of Moab tries to hire Balaam to curse Israel. And he tries to have Balaam do this over and over again. And what happens is, is that instead of cursing them, he blesses them. Okay, so what's, what's the big deal then? I don't understand. Right after that story, we read of how Israel compromised and how the men of Israel began to notice the Moabite women and, and they begin to... Um, they begin to just take them uh, as their wives or whatever. And what ends up happening, the result of, of all of that compromise is that they begin to worship these idols. They begin to uh, uh, worship these false gods that the Moabite women had. And if you were to go a little bit further into the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book right after Numbers, you would find out that it was Balaam's influence that caused that to happen. It was Balaam who told the Moabite women to do this. It was Balaam that sparked this heart of compromise in the people of Israel. Balaam was the source of this compromising temptation. And something similar is going on in the church of Pergamum in the book of Revelation. And Jesus gives a strong warning. And here's where we get lesson number two. See, Jesus is seeing what's happened. He's seeing this compromising. He's seeing what's going on. He's And this is lesson number two. Jesus is uncompromising about our compromising. Jesus is uncompromising about our compromising. And just for a tangent's sake, just for a second, I'm not talking about compromising about traditions. I'm not talking about compromising about cultural desires. I'm not talking about compromising the gospel. I'm talking about compromising the truth of Jesus. I'm talking about compromising that leads to this 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 abandoning of Jesus being the only one we worship. And so what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them to repent. Repent or there will be consequences. Throughout these letters, Jesus says over and over, repent. And repent is simply when you're going one way, you're facing this way, and now you turn this way and you, face, and you walk back towards Jesus. And you get right in line with those steps that we talked about. You're walking in the steps of Jesus on that beach, just walking in those steps. It's turning away from where we were heading and facing Jesus. Again, he says to repent. Repent or there will be consequences. And then we get some more of that weird imagery, right? We get some more of that weird imagery of this picture book. There's this stuff about a a hidden manna. And then there's something about white stones. What's going on there? Well... Here's some, some of the explanations that come for that, okay? Manna was food that God provided while the Israelites uh, walked around in the wilderness. 
It's kind of like a wafer, or bread. we're not really sure exactly what it is, but it's food that he provided. There was at that time in that culture a tradition that stated that there was a prophet Jeremiah that when Israel got conquered and got sent into exile, took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it and also took a golden pot filled with manna. And the, Israel, and the Jewish people during that day were waiting and they were hoping that one day Jeremiah would come back and there would be this feast with this manna. That's not in the Bible. That's a tradition. I'm just letting you know what the traditions were there. What we learn through the New Testament is that that, mess, that that feast, that feast of that manna, that feast of that bread is found in Jesus. That Jesus is that hidden manna. And he invites them in, in this act of grace. And we see that in this white stone. There's three different kind of things for this white stone um, that, were, that many people have looked at. And the three different things are this. One, in trials, when you were going to get a verdict, if it was an acquittal, you would get a white stone. At the end of a sporting event or race, if you were victorious, you would get a white stone. If you were going to be invited to a feast, your invitation would have been a white stone. We don't know what the white stone specifically was referring to, but what we do know is that in any of those pictures, whether it's one of acquittal for something that you have done, whether it's one of being victorious that only can come through Jesus, or one of an invitation to this messianic feast that can only come through Jesus, what we get is this picture of mercy and grace that is being extended to these churches, that while there is, and while Jesus is uncompromising about our compromising, and he is calling us to repentance, he still offers us mercy and grace. Okay, I told you this is going to be a lot. And it is. So we're going to go to this last lesson. This is the lesson of the church in Thyatira. Okay, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, and to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what, what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will, to then I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to, uh, to pieces like pottery, just I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, Thyatira isn't really a major city in the Asian province of Rome. Uh, it doesn't have kind of the political clout that 
Pergamum had. It doesn't have the beauty and wealth that Smyrna had. It was a, a trade city. That's what it was known for. It was a trade city. Uh, small business owners were in Thyatira. And what they did in Thyatira is that they lived these lives according to guilds, these guilds for these small business owners. And they would gather together and they would have these dinners. And at these dinners, all sorts of stuff happened. All sorts of stuff that were not, not good happened at these guild feasts. And in the midst of this, Thyatira is a church that's going on. And Jesus gives a pretty big commendation to this church, right? What does he say in here? He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That is a big commendation. Your heart is just right, Thyatira. You've got the right heart. You've got the right heart here. Thyatira kind of reminds us of, of Ephesus, what we learned last week, the church that we learned last week. What was the deal with Ephesus? Ephesus did a really good job about keeping a diligent eye on what they learned, a diligent eye on what was going on in their mind, on, on their instruction. But what, what was their critique? You've lost your first love. Your mind's right, but your heart, something's not right there. <coughs> Thyatira is actually the opposite. Their heart is right. Their heart is right. But they're in dangerous territory with some teaching. This Jezebel, this, this picture of a prophet, this one who speaks revelation of God, this one who speaks teaching of God, is teaching the wrong stuff. And the church is tolerating it. There is wrong stuff being taught. And they're tolerating it. And Jesus comes out and gives a strong critique against it. And in that, we get lesson number three. Jesus cares about our hearts and our minds. Again, what does he say in his critique? In verse 23, it says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay each of you according to your deeds. The problem with Ephesus was that they were very diligent with guarding their mind, but they did not guard their hearts. Thyatira is the opposite. They were very diligent about their hearts, but they did not guard their minds. And what is the result of this false teaching? What is the result of this dangerous teaching? Well, the result of that is this, this kind of explanation away of all these things. It's like, don't worry about those guild fees. Go do what you want to do. It's okay. Go and do whatever you want to do. Go participate over there. There's all sorts of stuff that is just crumbling the church. And this infuriates Jesus because once again, there is a pollution of the gospel. And Jesus promises to punish this false teacher and those that follow this false teaching unless, again, unless there is repentance. Jesus continues to call for repentance over and over again. Repent, repent, repent. Turn to me, turn to me, turn to me. And what is the result of this repentance? The result of the faithfulness in both heart and mind in this letter is an invitation to be part of of Jesus' kingdom, 
and the work of his kingdom. And the work of his kingdom is one that is focused on being disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. And one of the problems with polluted teaching is that it pollutes the picture of the church and it also pollutes the picture of Jesus. The teaching and doctrine and beliefs that we hold are extremely important. We need to guard our hearts like Thyatira. But we also need to guard our minds like Ephesus. And that is a lesson that Thyatira needed to know. Because Jesus cares about our hearts and our minds. So three lessons. Three lessons from three different letters to three different churches. Jesus knows about our hardships, even when it doesn't feel like he does. Jesus is uncompromising about our compromising. And Jesus cares about both our hearts and our minds. Okay, so what? What do we do with all that? Those are three lessons. They're kind of abstract. What do we do with that? Well, what's the focus of not just the letters, but the whole book? The focus is not on escaping, it's on engaging. The focus is on remaining faithful, being faithful disciples. And so how do we remain faithful we remain faithful by caring about both what our heart is like and what our mind is like. Being careful to really be diligent with what we learn, our doctrine, our beliefs. We remain faithful by being uncompromising about our compromising. We don't compromise on the gospel. We don't compromise on the absolutes. We keep the main thing the main thing. And then the third thing, if we're choosing to follow Jesus, we need to know that if we're going to take those little steps, hopping and skipping, into the bigger footsteps of Jesus, that we will eventually walk where he has walked. And that means that all of us will face pain, or hardship, or trial. But be encouraged, because the one you're following not only knows your pain, he knows how it feels, and he knows where you're going. And he knows where you're going. And he says, follow me. And remain faithful. Three lessons from three churches that are relevant to us today as we choose to be faithful disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Well, there's a lot in this book. There's a lot in this book for us to learn. And at times it's confusing. At times it just seems overwhelming. But Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on you, on Jesus. Help us to remain faithful to remain faithful in our hearts and with our minds, to be uncompromising on the gospel, and to trust you even when things are difficult. God, as a church, we desire to live out lives 
that are sold out for you. I ask you that you would begin to create that passion in our hearts. That no matter what it is that we face, good, bad, or in between, that we will remain faithful disciples following our King, Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.